Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here. I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy is built to make strategy work for CEOs and entrepreneurs by designing world-class strategic plans and keeping them accountable to get it done. To learn more, go to 40strategy.com. We have also released Lost at CEO. It's our book. It's the Amazon number one bestseller in 12 different categories. I encourage you to go out, take a look. You can find it on amazon.com, also audible.com and bardsandnoble.com. Before heading to our guests, we'd like to thank Paul Young. He's the author of The Shack for this recommendation. And he's a wonderful person and he'll also be released as a future guest. So I look forward to you getting your feedback on his show as well. So Brad is a global advocate and former tech CEO and he steers both grassroots and executive efforts on poverty, justice and reconciliation initiatives. He's catalyzing community rebirth internationally and now within Oregon's poorest community through a profound fusion of bottom-up and top-down methodologies for the transformative change. He's the author of The Flourishing Community, which I'm really excited about. He'll talk about that today. And for 25 years, he's had a thriving career in technology, culminating in his role as CEO of a publicly traded semiconductor company. Brad and his wife, Lynn, moved to Asia and he became the CEO of a major charity that served 100,000, he put it in these terms, ultra poor people every single year, returned to the U.S., and he's dug deep into one of the poorest communities in Oregon and has witnessed an amazing rebirth. This show is also part of our outreach to have a positive impact in this giving season. I hope today's message will inspire you to help make a difference as well and consider giving or at least finding ways to help make a difference with what they're doing and perhaps even buying his book to learn how you can apply it into your community as well. Brad, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Well, Carl, it's just a pleasure to be here. I'm really stoked today to reach out to your audience and to and to explain what we've been up to and what we've learned, and more importantly, how they can make a difference in their own communities. So, Brad, one of the biggest challenges, right, is people will go and be going through cities, and there almost appears to be this it's it's over right we can't do anything to recover this community there's graffiti everywhere there's uh, it almost feels like in some places a war zone we don't feel comfortable even walking through it for those in the outside they make no effort to go into it and those in the inside feel lost right they themselves feel stuck they don't know how to get out but you're doing something quite different you're actually trying to build within and and to really develop through this so why don't you share this process and just let's just go into the meat behind it because this has not been an overnight success. Tell us how you started and and some of the now and then we'll move, go into then some of the successes that you've seen through a lot of hard work and effort. I'm happy to. I, uh, as you mentioned, was a tech CEO. I was 
sort of at an inflection point in my own career. 2008, you might have read a little something in the paper about a small stock market correction. Uh, my company was wiped out, and so were we personally. My wife and I had been planning in sort of our second half to do something in the world of poverty or development. She had gotten her um, master's in public health from Oregon Health Sciences University. Our youngest was going to be out of, out of high school soon, and off we are to go save the world. But it didn't work out that way. It didn't work. It, it All of a sudden, we went from, hey, we're going to enter into this world of poverty alleviation from a position of, you know, personal wealth and personal power to, honestly, identification with the poor, bringing nothing, bringing no game, no resources, no leverage, uh, simply walking along uh, and observing with our own eyes and frequently our own experience what it's like to be uh, uh, in a position where there's no resources. And I really don't think I would have it any other way. I don't recommend it as a way to start, but it did yield incredible insights that we've applied and 10 years later have determined are very transformative for communities. So, and it, feel free to, so that's really interesting that, First of all, that story of, I think many people think, oh, I'm going to start giving when I do this or when I get to this number or when I get this particular area, as opposed to I'm just going in regardless of where I intended, right? You know, you know, life, the market changed, right? Which impacted what you said there. I mean, that's, that's a big struggle to begin with, right? And very- Absolutely. Humbling. You know, yeah, and I was in the same boat. I'm not- judging anybody who's, you know, listening to this podcast in the Christmas season saying, uh, wow, that's a big ask, you know, to go devote my life to these issues. Can't I just write a check? Well, that was me for 30 years. And I even served as the chair of the board of a local nonprofit that was a large shelter for homeless people. I mean, I was doing my part and I was happy with that. And I, I don't, I mean, if everybody would do what we were doing, world would be world would be a better place. But there was a call to go deeper and to uh, really make the, the second half of our lives more meaningful than the first. And we responded to that call. You know, Mother Teresa has a famous quote when she was really <clears throat> just cranking it and <clears throat> her organization was globally famous. People would show up, rich people would show up with like, like literally suitcases full of money, like here, we're here to help. And she would turn them away. She would say, find your own Calcutta, find your own Calcutta. And she was operating in Calcutta, India's poorest, you know, uh, slums. And it, it sounds very off-putting and very negative, but it wasn't. It was the point of find the need in your own local community and meet it. Uh, don't fly around the world to meet the need. And the truth is that even though in global poverty terms, COVID was a setback, the larger trend is that ultra poverty is being conquered. And the shift in this field of working with low-income folks is a profound shift from just alleviating human suffering that's increasingly being done. The shift is to stimulating human flourishing. 
I hope that makes sense that instead of let's plug the gaps, which are so important to do, instead of that, or in addition to that, I should say, now it's about, well, what does it take for a child born in very low income status in the United States to rise out of that? And I think that's an inspiring place to be. And every one of your listeners has got a community around them or close to them that's a lot like the community that I'm working in right now. And I think that they can find personal ways to get involved. They can find their own Calcutta, Carl. I I love this, how you've just put this kind of open challenge to um, what we're, yes, what we're doing has been successful and has been working, but you know, once again, find your own place, find where you can make the greatest impact where it's personal, so to speak, you know, where, where you, you know, you can measure and you can see right, <clears throat> the results of what's happening. So let's, let's dive in a bit into the work that you have been doing. I want you to describe a little bit when you first started this effort, if you could even give a description of you know, kind of where it is and what, yeah. what it is, I know it doesn't necessarily matter, but I think it always gives context a little bit. And, and then also, you know, what did you see when you started and what was the skepticism from, from the community and from the outside when you started your efforts? Yeah, great question. You know, let me just ground this first with the concept of, of, of some terminology, maybe some terminology that your readers, your listeners aren't uh, uh, easily working with. What's the difference between relief and development? What's the difference between relief and development? I don't know if you've ever thought of that before, but relief is more about felt needs and development is more about what's the larger environment that's causing so many needs to occur in a given area, okay? So relief is about the immediate, development's about the long-term. The um, relief would be giving a backpack to a kid at Christmas time, where development would be addressing the employment barriers that that kid's parents might be facing so that next Christmas, those parents can buy the kids their own backpack. And uh, there's a continuum kind of between relief and development. In the United States, we do a lot of relief and we don't do very much development. Globally, the US and major systems do a lot of development and and, uh, they also do a lot of relief, but it's kind of viewed more temporarily. We're trying to elevate the role of development in the U.S. uh, by nonprofits or by citizen groups and not just the province of the government. Now, we're not alone. There is a massive movement. And in every major city in the United States, there's a community development corporation, which is a form of 501c3 that's uniquely designed to work on the development side of things. So in my case, you know, I'm living in my kind of a, uh, executive estate home and minding my own business when there was a knock at the door one morning at five o'clock. And in my very quiet tree line street, when there's a knock at the door at five o'clock in the morning, it's never good. Uh, now I was getting up anyway to go lift and my buddy was going to come pick me up. So I opened the door and there's like this 14 year old kid standing on my doorstep named Ronaldo. And he was scared and he was dirty. And he said, can I get a ride home? I'm like, what, what, ride home? Who are you? How did you get here? 
And he had been involved in a drug deal that had gone bad and they had dumped him in the rose bushes out in front of my street. He walked up to my door and he asked for a ride home. As it turns out, we were kind of going near there anyway. So I was like, yeah, I'll take you home. And we took him home. And, you know, Carl, I was actually entering into one of those drive-by communities that you don't, you know, you just go around. And I was shocked. And I was like, wait a minute, this is two and a half miles from my house. The gap between me and Ronaldo was massive, culturally, socioeconomically, um, uh, in terms of social capital, which was a term I learned later about how you build wealth. We were on two different planets. And I went back home and I started to kind of grok the numbers a little bit. I, I'm an MBA guy, so we got to start with that. And I learned that the four or five contiguous census tracts in just two and a half miles from my area was a shocking place. It's Oregon's lowest income community. It's right outside Portland. Um, some of the data that you see about a, your communities when you look at this are are uh, stunning. We had 90 languages spoken at home in just a two square mile area. It's not just one of the most diverse or the most diverse in Oregon, but I'm learning it's the most diverse community in the nation. 90 languages, immigrants, refugees, uh, people who have no connection to the main market. There were other indicators. We have the worst health outcomes. We have the lowest levels of literacy. We have the lowest levels of income. We have the highest unemployment. We have, you name it, we've got it in this community. And we're kind of at the developing world level. If you run the numbers, we are basically Egypt, Uzbekistan, Bhutan, that kind of like lower middle-class country if the world's economy was ranked by class. That's not supposed to be present in Portland, Oregon, right? And the first response I had was to go to the various leaders, people I knew and say, hey, what are we doing about this? And the answer was, they didn't even know that Oregon's poorest community was right there. And further, it appeared they didn't want to do anything about it. So I felt like it was on us. I basically, I mean, basically, I decided to make that community's problems my business. Nobody asked us to make it my business. We just declared, look, someone's got to step into this thing and, and make it happen. And so we launched, I wrote a business plan. It's called the, the Community Development Corporation of Oregon. And to this day, it's hard to explain to people exactly what a CDC does because what you're doing is you're saying these massive problems are the result of systemic problems, systemic things that aren't working. Systems being healthcare, business, uh, the faith community, government, um, and uh, uh, the education uh, world. They're broken. So they're not working for these this large population of 40,000 people. And so the solution is a systemic solution. How do you work at the system level to start to affect change. And we began that. And 10 years later, we have succeeded. Um, we're interfacing directly with 70,000 people in our community every year with housing, with economic development, and now with community health efforts. And we are moving the needle on many of these systems. And now we're 
wrote a book about it and we're expanding to the rest of Oregon and even some national interest. So I'm curious about once again, I, I mean, I think it's fascinating of once again, you, you accelerated through these efforts, but this is not easy to get to success, right? Because, well, let, let's look at a, a basic example. Um, you're trying to build one home and you have the, and, and you already have a land put your, hu your house on. And even with perhaps permit delays, but you have the funding, that effort is a 12 to 18 month effort typically, right? Yeah. To, yeah. to, to, to get a one house built with existing utilities, right? <laughs> to be able to get it up and running, but to change, to concurrently do 10 houses or 30 houses, and then do it within an existing constraints, right? An existing city. It, it's like when a hurricane happens and, and the community, understandably, there's such pain and frustration from the outside, but we just described what it takes to get one house. Imagine getting like what's happening in Lahaina right now in Hawaii, right? To completely rebuild a community takes years, right? Absolute years. So here you are now a decade later, you're starting to see this real progress like happen and take place. Originally, when you were going in, there were people that were fighting you, like kind of from all directions. Why? Why would people try to fight somebody trying to come in and help? That's a great question. And it was kind of shocking why I learned later there was so much resistance. But before I get there, I do want to make a quick comment about the long-term nature of doing this kind of work. It is an eight to 10 year period to effect a, a broad community transformation. Um, is that a long time? I don't know. I, a friend of mine in Asia said to me years ago, he says, you know what's wrong with Americans is we overestimate what we can accomplish in one year. And we underestimate what we can accomplish in 10 years. Totally true of me, 100%. Uh, but it was helpful to think about a 10-year time frame. And even here in year 10 of our, of our organization, which we're just wrapping up, more happened in year 10 than in the previous nine combined. So it's just kind of that, that you know, uplift, that hockey stick that everybody talks about uh, finally occurs. But why the resistance? Well, at first, when we first opened up shop, there was an immediate influx of resources. People were like, hey, finally, someone's going to do something about this place. Great. And I'll bet you many of your listeners who have like opened a clothes closet or who have said, we're going to do food distribution. Like at first, the normal pattern is because there's a pent up demand for people to do something in a community. The second somebody says, I'm going to do something, it's like, woohoo, we're all in, right? And they find, and the first thing everybody thinks is, wow, this is going to be easier than I thought. And that's what I thought too. I was like, wow, you know, um, we can't even sign up volunteers fast enough. This is amazing. And I guess we'll be done with this thing in a couple of years and we'll move on and get back to my life. But the resistance started to trickle in because I found out something I didn't know. I found out that there are a lot of people out there who make money off of poverty. Hmm. 
And now we call them the poveteers. The poveteers are these folks that are, they may look like they're trying to solve poverty. They may have a machine that is supposed to solve poverty. But as I learned later, the poor are not the outputs of these machines. They are the raw materials of these machines. And these machines are actually designed to enrich the people who run them. And we call this Poverty Inc. It's the poverty industrial complex that is sometimes benefiting people. I don't want to say it's all a waste, but it is many times substituting the, the, the uh, support of the institution instead of the support of the outputs. And, you know, I, I kind of felt like, wow, was I naive, but uh, the, the folks who were making the money were good at hiding themselves and they were good at cloaking. And as we started to get close to the truth, they started to bash back hard. And in our particular case, Oregon is a racist place. And unfortunately, there was a racist uh, 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 impulse at the root of much of the poverty ink uh, in our state. It got so bad that at one point, our own city government tried to shut us down. And all we were doing was minding our own business, trying to introduce systemic change, never understanding how threatening that is to folks who make their living off of the broken systems. The only way we actually survived the onslaught was COVID. You ready for this? The minute COVID hit, we, we were actually, honestly, we were year six and we were kind of on the ropes. It wasn't going that well. Uh, yeah, we had made a lot of progress, but uh, we were even talking about perhaps uh, curtailing or, or at least lessening the scope of our work. And when COVID hit, our or state's health authority said, hey, we know where the epicenter of deaths will be in Oregon. It's going to be in your community. Uh, we've got money to address that, but there's no organization that will quarterback that play for the community because we can't trust the city government, we can't trust the county. Um, would you guys be willing to? And the answer was yes. So yeah. all of a sudden, the bucks started flowing. And we had six years of relational brand equity in our community that we put to work. And it worked. And it put us back on the map statewide. Today, Federal organization, you know, federal funds, state funds, major philanthropies, the county, they're all funding us to reach out to this community. And our budget this year is $7 million, and I think it's on the grow. So that puts us as one of the largest nonprofits in the state. So it's interesting. It's, it's in, First of all, I really find it fascinating that the state knew this was going to be the largest impact area. I thought that was really interesting that you said that, like, like they, they knew based on demographics, right? And More than that, economic, they also yeah. knew that the city of, uh, in this case, Gresham, not Portland, I just wanted to make clear this is, Portland's got its own problems, but uh, Gresham, <laughs> you know, Gresham really doesn't, even to this day, want poverty to be solved. They want the poor to move away. They want them gone. And mm. the state knew that. The feds knew that. They have money for Oregon's poorest community, but someone's got to apply for it. Someone's got to organize the work. 
And if your municipality isn't doing it, I think many of your readers will be surprised to learn that they can do it. And many, in many cases with these federal agencies and state agencies, they were like, hey, we've been waiting for someone to want to do something in this community. You want the dough? Here's the dough. And, you know, uh, we're, we're happy to support that. Wow. So now, as you, you talk about it, that there, fortunately, there was this positive catalyst, right, which, right. which created and you built up this trust, which I think is really interesting. You know, you talked about it, it really took six years, right, to develop significant trust. And then there was a positive catalyst, ironically, a positive catalyst being COVID, right? You know, uh, most people wouldn't think it would have been a positive catalyst, but it created a need, right, to, to solve a, a really big challenging issue. Um, but now you've got this point, once again, where you've got significant support around. Now, can you describe, once again, for those who are listening, some of like the results, tangible results that's happening in the community as a result of the actions that have been taking place? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm going to describe <clears throat> outputs, not outcomes. Difference, outputs is sort of the, the results of our work. Outcomes would be 10 years from now, how does this affect someone's life? And that's actually what everybody wants to know is, can you lift somebody out of poverty? Can you change their fundamental health? Um, we're too, it's too early for us to know because we're only 10 years into this. But in terms of outputs, they're strong. And I think any logic person would say, yeah, they're going to result in great outcomes. Let me give you an example. Um, <clears throat> we recently purchased a 75-room hotel and converted it to transitional housing for families, meaning that a family can be on the street and come into our hotel four to six months later. They're the objective is that they move out into their own apartment. And we've now had that with over 300 families in just 18 months because we have processes that support them uh, being able to achieve that great output. Now, what's the outcome in the life of that child that's now in an, an apartment instead of on the street? I don't know, uh, but there's no way that it's a negative outcome. Uh, so in terms of outputs, 300 families in uh, our uh, economic development program now has 198 small entrepreneurs. Our micro lending program is now giving out uh, loans, injecting liquidity into the community. Our community health work is actively engaged from the top of the state to the local clinic on how to reorient clinics so that they're more responsive to these 90 language groups that are spoken at home. And it just kind of goes on and on and on. There's, um, uh, as I indicated, 70,000 people we directly engaged in the last year. Again, with development, working on what is it you want to work on? What is it this community needs from your perspective, not, not from our perspective or what we want to work on? And it's just a cumulative feeling that this community is finally on the move. Of course, we're calling the Magistrates Podcast. And so I want to talk about this briefly in terms of, I really appreciated how you talk about this, this, this outputs and then the longer term perspective, right? Of, of what's going to happen. So help, help us out a little bit of how do you measure? So how are you measuring success today? Yep. And, and then going to that kind of future 10 year vision from now, right? You know, if, if we go to there, 
how are you going to measure that success 10 years from now? I think this is applicable to any business, whether it's in nonprofit or not. And that's grounding the whole idea of your logic model. Uh, the logic model being, you know, what are, first of all, the definition of, of current reality and how does that uh uh, deficient from your ideal future state. So what's the problem? What are the inputs that you have to work with? Uh, what are the activities that you're going to be applying to with those inputs to the problem? What are the measurable outputs from that activity? And then ultimately, what are those outcomes? So that's the basic building blocks of a mo logic model. And, you know, the data portion of this, of uh, defining the problem is both a quantitative and a qualitative effort. Um, we do data mapping. I mean, the in, in uh, the metadata that's now available about every community is mind-blowing. Free maps, uh, both from the government or various research groups. You want to know something about your community? It is a click away these days. If uh, and, and if you don't know how to do it, just find a consultant and pay him a couple bucks and you'll get your answers. Um, the qualitative data has to be measured, has to be married to that. And we have a formal program of qualitative data, formal listening process. We have listened to maybe five to 7,000 adults in our community talk about their aspirations for the community over the last five years. I think any corporation in any context that's listening to the customer that closely is going to know what to do. Uh, I think we've, we very rarely make a mistake in our work because we have constant streams of qualitative and quantitative data coming in that tell us where people are really at, what kind of products and services they want, what they're willing to engage with, what new resources they're willing to attract or bring into our work. And I hope every company and every small business person who's listening today will think about new ways that they can bring new quantitative or qualitative data into their efforts. So that's at the beginning, you know, that's at the base. It's not a one-time deal. It's constantly listening, constantly testing. And then we, you know, apply, um, you know, methodologies to work with the community. Um, none of it's fancy. We, we kind of have a joke that, it, you know, in, in the nonprofit world, we do a lot of R&D, rip off and duplicate. So we're always looking for, you know, programs that have proven statistical outcomes or outputs. And, you know, we just try to bring them here to this community. Uh, today, we have about 50 people on staff. And these are folks that are all expert in these various programmatic areas. And then in terms of measuring outputs, uh, we have data analysts on staff who are, who are testing, they're measuring, they're drawing conclusions. And then we, we have this iterative process of, of then improving. That should all sound very familiar to any business person. And I hope it is. I hope they're doing it because it works. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is starting to become what's really neat is a model, right? For for others out there who who can now take some things that you've learned, you know, if you may in the same concept of R and D as you put in your terms, and and finding a way to use it to different areas. And that's also what your book does, the flourishing communities give give reports that. You already have something that's working. You know, I, I for myself, I know who do give to multiple different organizations. I like to, you know, I don't mind saying this. I like to give towards those who figured it out, right? Because I want to keep on helping them go to that next step of that next mile, you know, and and being uh, helped towards that. 
is there ways that who or people are thinking that they can help give towards what you're doing? And it, it, do you have a, something set up, so a website, et cetera, so they can help learn more and consider contributing directly to what you're doing? I mean, thanks for bringing that up, Carl. The answer is yes, of course. You know, we're a nonprofit. Um, hey, one of the one of the uh, side notes from the kind of trust that we've been given is that we are fully funded as an organization. When a donor makes a donation, it's not going to go into my salary. It's not going to pay for lights. It's not going to do anything but be applied directly to one of our program areas. And this Christmas with your, uh, anything that comes in through your linkage, Carl, and your listeners, if you'll identify yourself somehow, uh, and we have places on our on our webpage for you to do that, um, it's going to go 100% so that parents in our shelter for uh, for homeless families can get their kids Christmas presents. So every dime is going to go straight to that. We'll have a pool there and our local staff will administer that. To find us, the corporation name is Community Development Corporation of Oregon, which is CDC, Charlie David Charlie, Oregon, cdcoregon.org. There's a donate button. And then you can also go to you know, all the other uh, brands that we have and the different initiatives that we have. This has been uh, fantastic, Brad, to learn about what you're doing, giving an opportunity. And once again, as I've, I've done with the other organizations, I encourage you, you to go out, learn more about what they're doing and to help make a difference, right? That they are already within a community that has gained trust and 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 now they have the the resources to find homes or, you know, get the opportunity to move in to get permanent housing. And that difference is so significant in somebody's lives, right? Get that stability and that shelter, right? The basics so they can start building from their, their lives or what they're able to do. So I encourage you once again, for everyone to do this, uh, Brent, I'm curious um, from your perspective, I, I just going to just got a minute and I know we're going a little bit over, but on a personal side, this is not an easy thing to do, right? To every day face this battle. I know it feels like probably to some degree, there's a little bit of wind at your back, but you know, the winds can change briefly. What are you doing on a personal basis to maintain your own constitution to make make sure you can continue positive leadership in what you do? Great question, because it is a marathon, not a sprint. And the resources that one has to draw on to stay in this game and stay healthy um, are resources. I, I frankly, I didn't know I had. Um, yeah, I'm a man of faith. Yeah, I'm a man with a lot of friends and a lot of background. But uh, it has caused me to dig really, really deep in order to achieve what we've achieved. And I talk about this in my book, The Flourishing Community, which is available on Amazon. Flourishing Community: A Story of Hope for America's Distressed Places. And the narrative kind of has two, two tracks. One is this story that we've talked about today, including some of the personal things I've learned along the way. But also the other track is just the nuts and bolts of what is community development uh, and how it can be started or enhanced in your own community. So I encourage your readers to find it and to engage with it and reach out to me and my team if you want to take the conversation further. That's fantastic. No, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate, you know, being able to have the opportunity to go deeper to understand that as more as well. You've provided our information on how to connect, which I think has been wonderful. And once again, I just want to encourage everybody 
to move out and help give a difference towards that. So Brad, thank you so much. Any, ah, of course, um, favorite book. So, or, or, book. or, or an in, a book that's not your own, of course, what is a book that has inspired you that you want to share with others? So many, but on this topic, the book Community by Peter Block, just that's it, Community, Peter Block. It's not about massive transformation at scale like I'm talking about. It's about you in community at your church, at your school, with your friends, at your local municipality. So smaller scale, beautiful book, very challenging. And uh, I think the world would be a better place if everybody did what Peter Block says to do. Good. Great recommendation right there. Brad, thank you so much once again for being a guest on the Measure Success Podcast. And to everyone else who's listening, we just appreciate what you do. We appreciate your ratings. We appreciate to, and I hope you are part of this. You get on top of, of these multiple different organizations that we're talking about with each week that you have an opportunity to give to, whether you give to all of them or to one of them. I hope you find one that's going to, you can pass along that the best part of Christmas is actually giving, not receiving. And I hope you will find that that in your heart to be able to give towards that. So as we always like to say, wishing you the very best and measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.